isn't it enough to see that a garden is beautiful without having to believe that there are fairies at the bottom of it? Isn't it enough to see that a garden is beautiful without having to believe that there are fairies at the bottom of it? When it comes to questions about the origins of the universe, when it comes to the issue of God being the creator of the world, this little phrase perfectly sums up the response of most outside of the church. God is seen as an irrelevant fairy story. He's a myth that helped people feel better. He's an old-fashioned explanation that we used to use to fill in the gaps in our knowledge. But now we've got a better understanding. Is it really necessary for people today to believe that God created the world? Is it sensible for people today to believe that God created the world? Over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at the very first chapters of the Bible. Uh, We're going to be opening the first book, the first page, the first chapter, and today we're reading the very first sentence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you were to pick up your Bible and start reading at page one, the first thing you are confronted with is this sentence, this truth, this fact that God created this world. And it doesn't just, it, that's not a theme that just pops up and then disappears after this first chapter. This is a theme that then permeates throughout the whole of the Bible. It's a happy coincidence today that we're reading from Psalm 33. And Psalm 33 is a psalm that praises God for his work in creation. It praises him for his power shown in creation. It praises him for his ongoing rule over creation. It praises him him that he sees everything that happens within his creation and it acknowledges that God loves and cares for his creation. And elsewhere in the Bible, we find that it's this truth about creation, God being creator and we being those things that he has created, This is one of the things that helps define the difference between God and humanity. This is the thing that helps us show how different God is from ourselves. He's not just like some really great boss. He's not just like the most powerful man on earth. He's not just one step up from the President of the United States or whatever else people might like to think of him. God is different from us. He's separate. When God chooses to reveal his name to his people, to Moses, he says his name is I am. I am who I am. Not that I started, not that I will be, I am. And in fact, I always have been. The difference between God and humanity is that God is eternal. He has no beginning and he will have no end. Nobody created God, nobody caused him. There is no outside motive or action or purpose that acts upon God. He's so different from us. We all have a beginning. We all started. In fact, everything that we experience has a beginning. And yet God is different. God is truly eternal. Now that's an easy thing to explain, but it's a hard thing to understand. Because literally nothing else in our whole experience of life has this same property. Literally nothing else that we touch or feel or see or engage with is eternal. God alone is the one who has no beginning. 
And, and because we don't experience or touch or see anything else that's eternal, this is the reason why it's so hard for us to get our head around it. When you work with children and you teach them the things of the Bible, so often you'll come up against this question, who made God? And to them it's a logical question because everything is made, everything starts, everything that we experience has a beginning, apart from God. God is outside of time. God is outside of creation. God is eternal. We, however influential and significant and strong we might feel, we are limited in this fact that we are created. We had a beginning. Only God is creator. And that sets him apart from us. But why should we believe any of this at all? How do we know that that God is our creator? How do we know that he is so different from us? How do we know that we were created and that we're not just here by complete chance? Well, the simple answer to that question is because the Bible tells us so. Now, I know, if you're not a Christian, or if you're here just sort of assessing Christianity, finding out what we believe, that's not going to convince you very well. But if you are a Christian you need to be reminded that if this is God's word, if you have been convinced by the Holy Spirit that this is God's word to you, then at some point, you need to allow God's word to be your highest authority. You need to allow God's word to be the one that influences your understanding of reality and your life. Rather than, as is often the case, people form their own ideas about life and then try and see how the Bible fits in with it. But the problem with doing that is you're making your own reason, you're making your own logic, you're making your own experience the highest authority in life. As Christians, we say, no, this is God's word to us. We believe that. And there there are a number of good reasons why we believe that. We believe this is God's word. And as God's word, God's word takes the highest authority in our life. So God's word informs our understanding of reality. God's word informs how we see and understand the world in which we live. But interestingly, on this particular topic, the topic of God being creator of the world, the Bible also tells us we didn't actually need Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. We didn't need God's word to tell us that God is the creator. That's why we read from Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, those words that Richard just read to us, remind us that the claim that God is creator doesn't need to be given us in God's word. Actually, that claim is self-evident in the creation, if only we would take time to look. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them. What may be known about God is plain to them. Because God has made it plain to them. How has God made it plain to them? Ah, God's word, we might say. No, 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 that's not what Paul's arguing for. It says he's made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. What these verses claim is that even without Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, we would still be able to know that God created the world. How so? What is this 
plainness? Where is this evidence that God has given us to make it so clear that he is creator? Well, this morning I want to point you to to four particular things that I believe give us evidence that this world is created by God. And those four things are not taken from God's word, not because God's word has no authority or is not useful, but because I want to show you that just by looking at the world, just by being open to, to what we see around us, we can see this truth that God is the creator of the world. The first piece of evidence is the evidence of what I've called reason. And by this I mean the reason for the world existing. What reason do we have for being here? What reason is there that for us existing? And I don't just mean us, like sentient life, conscious people. I just mean anything. Why does space exist? Why does matter exist? Why does time exist? Why is there something rather than nothing? Now, science claims to have a number of answers to that. Their model of the the, the Big Bang attempts to trace all the way back to the very origins of the universe and and explain what's happened and give us a timeline of how we've got from uh, from an explosion 13 billion years ago to where we are today. But even taking that model into account, you're still left with the question, what went bang? And why did it go bang, importantly? What caused the rest of the causes in the, in the universe? Is it reasonable to suppose that nature somehow created itself? I would say that's not reasonable. In fact, it's illogical. How can nature have created itself if, in fact, it, it didn't exist in the first place? The fact that the universe has a beginning implies that there is someone or something outside of it that has given it that cause, that has started it off. That there is some supernatural, that is outside of nature, non-dependent being, not dependent upon anything within creation, that is the one who has caused it. And we would say, that thing, that person, is God. Reason shows us that the universe was most likely caused by someone or something. The second piece of evidence is what are called the evidence of design. Uh, The the incredible design that we see throughout the universe. And there's a number of different angles that you can take on, on this piece of evidence. On the one hand, you can look at the variety and the complexity of design in the world around us. In our bodies, in the animal world, in the nature of uh, this, this globe in which we live. You can see the number of different varieties of ways of flying. Three or four different ways that animals fly. Uh, There are uh, different methods of reproduction. There are different methods of breathing. Some above water, some below water. There is the incredible complexity of certain organs within the body. The, The incredible amount of information that's stacked into the DNA molecule, for example. The, the complexity of the nervous system, where each part depends upon the other into, to work effectively. Is it reasonable to suppose that all this variety and all this complexity happened purely by chance? I would say it's unreasonable. Although many sceptics brush aside these examples of design because they claim to have answers in the form of natural selection. Well, it's evolution. That's how we get to these, this incredible complexity and intricate features. 
But something that's much more difficult to refute is what is sometimes called the fine-tuning of the universe. There are about 15 or so universal constants that govern the way the universe works. And some of these constants, if you change them by one part in a million million, then life would not be able to form as we know it. The, the, the strong nuclear force, for example, which holds protons and neutrons together at the centre of an atom. If that constant that, that governs that force was just half a percent stronger, then protons and neutrons would all just clump together in one big heavy mass. You wouldn't be able to have the variety of elements that we have. But if it was just 2% weaker, then no atoms would be able to form at all. Neutrons and protons would just be spread about the universe in randomness. Now, that force didn't evolve. That's just present. It's a constant as part of the universe. You could look again at, for example, water. Water's an interesting one. Do you know, nearly every other liquid on Earth, when it freezes, it gets more dense. And so it would sink to the bottom of the liquid. If water did that, it would mean that the oceans would freeze from the bottom upwards. And if the oceans froze from the bottom upwards, a much wider range of the oceans would be ice. And you wouldn't have the conditions needed to be able to form life. Water didn't evolve. But water has got those specific properties needed to be able to support life on Earth. Or again, you take the, the, the model of the Big Bang which scientists so often use to describe the, the universe. If you go right back to the beginning, the, the bang, as it were, and you look at the rate at which the bang happened, how fast did, did the universe expand? If that rate of expansion was just 0.0000001% slower, the bang would have happened and then crumpled back together again in less than a second. If the rate of expansion was 0.0000001% faster, the universe would have expanded so fast that nothing would have joined together. We're at the what they call the Goldilocks position. That just the right amount of expansion happened in order to allow protons, neutrons, electrons to, to join together to make atoms, to make life. The Goldilocks condition. The universe in which we live is remarkably well-tuned to support life. And it's not just one or two constants. It's not just one or two areas. The more you look, the more of these issues there are. It seems as if the universe was designed to be a place in which people could live. And that designer, of course, we say, is God. The third piece of evidence is the evidence of beauty. I'm sure most of you have, at some point, stopped what you were doing in order to observe a beautiful sunset. Most of you will have been refreshed by some wonderful tasting food. Most of you will have been moved by music that touches your emotions. Most of you have seen and stopped to look at the intricate details and the shapes in the petal of a flower or in the wing of a butterfly. Most of you will have seen the intense colours in a tropical reef or fish. 
Most of you have had your breath taken away by an amazing landscape from the top of a mountain. But when you see these examples of beauty, what actually is it that's going on in your mind? Why do you call these things beautiful? Why are these things attractive? Why are they desirable? Why are they good? If we're here by chance, if we're just the the result of natural selection and evolution, then what purpose is there for beauty? Why do we see things as being beautiful? What is the explanation for this feeling? What is the desire that you have for beautiful things? The desire for joy or for love or for satisfaction that beautiful things create in us. And why is it that our desire for beauty never seems to be able to be quenched? You can never have enough of beauty. Ah, that's too much for now. I'll come back to it later. There's always more beauty that we can see. There's always more beauty that we can enjoy. And so we have a desire for beauty which seems like it can never be fulfilled or satisfied in this world. If we have a desire for something that nothing in this world can fulfill, yet must exist, because if it didn't exist, why would we have the desire for it? If we have a desire for something which nothing in this world can fulfill, surely that points to the fact that it's something outside of this world that we're longing for. And so beauty in creation points us to see Actually, there is a a God who made the world. But it tells us something about God as well. It tells us that this God who made creation is a good God. That he is the answer to our desire for beauty and our longing for goodness. God is the answer to those desires. Fourthly, the evidence of morality. It's fair to say that all humans have some standard of moral standards by which they seek to abide. And what's more is that when you are probed, however much you like to deny it, or however much others might like to deny it, those standards of morality are not relative. You consider them to be objective. You consider that your standard of morality is right for any and every person in any and every situation. Is it right, for example, to oppress women? to trample them underfoot so that men can take the rule of society? Is it right to exterminate, to kill the disabled or the elderly because they're weak and they have no benefit to society? Is it right to force a certain group of people into slavery? Now, if morality is relative and objective then those societies in the past, or even today, which practice these things, they're right in what they're doing. But you know that it is wrong to do those things. You know that it is wrong to oppress women. You know that it is wrong to exterminate or kill the disabled or the elderly just for the fact that they're disabled. You know that it's wrong to force people into slavery. But unless the world was created by God... There is no such thing as objective morality. There is no such thing as a real right or wrong. Unless the world was created by God and given order and given instruction and rules and clarity on on what is right and wrong, then there is no such thing as morality. You have no right to say that those people are wrong in what they're doing. There is no such thing as human rights if there is no God. 
And yet you know that there is. You know that there is such a thing as right and wrong. And you seek to uphold those standards in your own life. And you would want somebody to intervene if we saw it happening wrong in some other part of the world. And so we get back then to Romans 1. What may be known about God is plain to us. Because he has made it plain. God is our creator. And we know it. We can see his eternal power. We can see his ability to design and order and structure the universe in order to support life. We can see his eternal power there. We can see that he is not constrained by the universe. He must be outside of creation in order to be the one who caused creation. We can also see something of his divine nature. We can see his goodness shown in beauty and joy and love and order of the world. And we see his righteousness by knowing that there is a difference between right and wrong. So it's not a case that we've seen a beautiful garden and decided to add fairies at the bottom of it. What's actually happened is we've seen the beautiful garden and we've recognised there must be a gardener responsible for this. This truth has any number of implications. In fact, you could potentially trace almost every Christian action in some way back to this idea that God is creator and we are the created. But I want to just focus on two significant implications this morning. The first is, if the universe was created by God, this means that your life has value and purpose. You are not here as a random chance event. You are not an inconsequential lump of carbon-based molecules, interestingly arranged. Your experience of life is not purely an illusion conjured up within your own consciousness. The Bible says you are created by a loving God for a purpose. You are not a waste. You are not random chance. You are not insignificant. You are valuable because you were created. You were created by an eternal God, and so your life has eternal significance. Now, it might be that for some people here, that is perhaps all you needed to hear this morning. Perhaps the the despair or the difficulties of life are so weighing you down that you're beginning to lose sight of any reason to carry on. You're tempted, like Job was, to curse the day that you were born, to wish that you weren't here. It's no secret that in the UK, suicide is the biggest killer of men under the age of 45. Due, in no small part, I expect, to men struggling to see a way out of their difficulties, but also not seeing any reason to carry on through those difficulties. The Bible says, here is reason. Your life has value. Your life has purpose. It's a purpose that only God can provide, but your life has purpose. And that the goodness and the joy and the hope that you are searching for can be found by knowing the God who made you. Secondly, to those for whom that is probably not much of an issue right now, we also need to be reminded that being part of God's creation, that is having this this purpose and meaning and value to your life, means that we are therefore accountable 
for how we use our lives. What is the purpose that God made you for? Are you living as though that purpose, that design for your life, can be chosen and dictated by yourself? Are you living as though you are king of your life? As though you get to dictate what happens and why and when? Or are you living according to the pattern that you were made for? Are you living to know and to serve and to glorify this God that made you? That's the reason you were made. Who rules your world? Who sets your standard for morality? What is the goodness and the beauty that you are chasing and that you are looking for in this world? If the answer to any of those questions is anything other than God, then you are living for less than you were designed for. That's like taking taking a bookshelf and trying to use it as a ladder. It's like trying to take a biro and use it as a hole punch. You might get somewhere close to what you're hoping to achieve. But in the end, you're using it for the wrong purpose. And you're not getting the most out of what it was designed to do. If your life is designed around anything other than seeking God and knowing him as your creator and as your God, then yeah, you, might, you might feel at times like you're getting somewhere close to what you're aiming to achieve. But in the end, you'll find that the results are unsatisfying. They don't reach what you were hoping for. And that most significantly, you're not reaching the potential for which you were designed. Each and every one of us, at the end, will have to give an account. We'll stand before God and have to answer for the way we've used our lives, the way we've used our time, the way we've used our abilities. And only those who have sought to glorify God in their lives will be welcomed into that new creation. Only those who've sought God will be welcomed in to enjoy God for all of eternity. These are the implications of God being our creator.